This would normally be at 7.42. Our first check-in with Danielle Smith brought to you by Rivers Edge Villa Bungalows in Cochrane. Call to book your private appointment. Show homes now open. But council voting this week to make masks mandatory in the city of Calgary as of August 1st. So it's perfect timing for our check-in with Mayor Nahed Nenshi to discuss the new bylaw. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Want to start with a text that we got this morning. Here we go. The world has gone mad. More people die from flu and heart disease, but now everyone has jumped on the mask bandwagon. Nothing but lemurs. So from one lemur to another, what say you to this kind of attitude? Well, the first sentence is clearly completely fake news. Um, In fact, uh, coronavirus deaths in the U.S. have now exceeded heart disease deaths uh, on a day-to-day basis, which is pretty shocking. And heart disease, by the way, not contagious. Uh, So it's just kind of an exceptionally silly thing to say. And, of course, coronavirus deaths in the first six months of this year have uh, been an order of magnitude higher than flu deaths the, the worst flu death year of the last decade. So I don't know why people keep repeating stuff. That is totally false. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the point. You don't want to get sick. You don't want your grandma to get sick. And you want the stores to stay open and you want the kids to go back to school. Wearing a little piece of mask over your face will help you do that. I wonder if you can give us some insight, Mayor. In the last Friday when we had a discussion with you, as we do on Fridays, you'd mentioned you know, transit is very much in focus and there could be a chance that we could move to public spaces. What was the change in those meetings on Monday uh, that made it uh, full stop uh, mandatory masks in public places? You know, it was, it was one of the most fascinating political things in my life and it actually really talks about the power of nonpartisan city councils. Because, you know, when there is a debate, at the provincial or federal level, everyone already knows how they're going to vote. The debate is kind of a sham. On Monday morning, we basically had, I would say, probably a bare majority to uh, do masks on transit and probably not even a majority to develop a bylaw going forward. But people really listened to the presentation and they listened to the conversation and they learned two things. Number one is... You know, in all the fatigue over the daily coronavirus reports, I think a lot of folks don't realize how bad it's gotten in the last week. So we doubled our active cases in Calgary in one week, which is almost, which is about as fast as the worst of it in April. And if we double again this week and double again next week, by the end of next week, we will have as many cases as we did at the absolute height of the shutdown. Mm. Uh, in April. So it's not just going in the wrong direction, it's accelerating. And that made folks pretty nervous. And then we had a doctor there, Dr. Raj Bardwaj, and he said one thing that I think really impacted a lot of counselors. And he said, listen, he got a little emotional. He said, I have been practicing medicine for decades and I do urgent care. So I save lots of lives. That's what I do. But I got to tell you, this half hour that I'm spending with you, if I can convince you to move faster, on this mask mandate, then I will have saved more lives than I will save in my entire medical career. Wow, that gives me goosebumps. Right? Yeah. And council, you know, thought about it, and we went from probably a 4 to 11 vote one way to a 12 to 3 vote the other way over the course of the debate. And I was really proud of council. They listened to the data, they listened to one another, uh, and they moved forward. Even me, you know, when we talked last Friday, I was very happy to go with transit, and I was like, "Mm, let's think about the timing on the rest. And even I was convinced by that data. 
Question for you. We have two questions quickly before we let you go uh, running out of time. But is a face shield considered a mask? We've heard from a lot of people who can't wear a mask but want to wear a face me- face shield. Yeah, they, they can do it. Um, Dr. Bardwarsh says it's not quite as effective as a mask. But you know what? Um, if that's something that you're trying, do it. But it must cover your nose, your mouth, and your chin. Here's the other question. It's important to mandate the masks. And uh, with this decision coming a a few days ago, why August 1st? If it's important enough to mandate, why not have it start today or maybe Monday? So to be clear, you should wear a mask starting today. We are enforcing it starting August 1st. And the reason for that gap is just to give people time to get masks, to give stores time to develop policies, procure masks if they need to, to make sure that we're able to give out masks on our transit vehicles and so on. But you should start today. And i got to tell you, in the last two days, I have seen the mask-wearing amount go through the roof. You know, I have a friend who every morning sends me her report on her C-train car, (laughs) and it was never more than 35% before. Uh, And day before yesterday on her way home, it was 90%. Good to know. Okay, and then the last thing, not a question, just wanted to let you know because a texter said, could you please tell the mayor it's time to reopen Memorial Drive to traffic again? So we'll Uh, leave. I have an answer answer to that. So uh, we just actually got uh, the memo on that. Uh, So we're still seeing a lot of use of uh, Memorial with non-motorized vehicles and still pretty low motorized vehicle use. So that's going to stay in place until the end of August. And then we will reassess it and we'll probably just do it on the weekends. Perfect. Thank you so much for the update. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. That's Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. 747 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main Street's highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. Coming up to 6.09 on the morning news. And yes, schools will be back in action this fall. And we've seen a lot of parents on social media say they'll be keeping their kids at home from school for various reasons. What will homeschooling look like if parents decide to keep their kids at home? We're joined by Judy Arnell, uh, president of the Alberta Homeschooling Association. Good morning to you, Judy. Good morning. Well, homeschooling, nothing new to you, but I think a a lot of parents had a taste of homeschooling, obviously, over the past few months. Are you hearing uh, more from uh, parents out there who weren't in the homeschooling stream before with uh, questions about moving ahead with it? Yes, but the difference this fall is that parents are going to legally home educate their children. And what that does is it puts them in the driver's seat. Whereas this spring, they have just been enforcing homework Mm -hmm. from the school. So there's a big legal difference. Parents need to notify a willing school board 
by September 30th to get funding and supports for their children this year. Okay, so let's get into that. Let's get into that funding section of things because I didn't even realize that you can actually get money to help. Is it to buy the, the supplies that you need then? Yes, parents do not get funded to teach because they're not certified teachers, but they get $850 per child per year to offset the cost of resources. Okay, and what, what might those be that you might need to, to, to supply for your child at home? Um, parents are hiring tutors. Um, they can buy curriculum. They can buy um, whatever supports their child needs to aid in learning. But it's really important. The cutoff date for funding is September 30th. So they, they actually need to legally register for home education to get that. Okay. So, Judy, you mentioned the past handful of months have been different than homeschooling, more like overseeing a curriculum provided and on online classes. Uh, but how would I know that it might be a good fit for me from that little taste of having the kids at home doing their schoolwork? How do you know that your uh, student is a good candidate for homeschooling? Well, every student's a good candidate for home education. Um, parents know because they've been home educating their children since birth. So <laughs> unlike the spring, it's a lot like um, when your preschooler was engaged in learning. Children learn naturally. Um, it's, it's not something we have to do or teach them. Kids are born curious. They want to learn. And this year... Parents can take their kids out of school just for one year, and then the next year they can put them right back into the next grade. There's no testing, um, and every child is going to learn. Absolutely. I love that. So, you know, just even at this year, if you're not comfortable, and I've heard from a lot of parents that are just simply not comfortable sending their kids back to school this year. So this might be an option. Judy, can you talk to us a bit about from right from the start, what are the first steps that we need to do? And then how does it look like what what does it look like to teach your child at home? Okay, so right from the start, um, there is a list of willing non-resident school authorities that will supervise your program and, and provide a certified teacher to help you out. The list is on our website at albertahomeschooling.ca. So parents have to contact any one of those school um, boards or private schools um, in order to notify their children, to register their children with them. Then um, what happens then is the school authority will contact them with a certified teacher facilitator to help them set up a program, help them pick resources and curriculum. And, um, and then we kick in. We're, we're a support group and we help parents, you know, iron out problems or any concerns they may have. And then it's it's wonderful. It's it's like a July day in summer and on the weekend. It's <laughs> super easy to do. Judy, what do you say to the detractors who say the kids don't get uh, socialization that they would in a school setting? You know what what is set up and and how as a homeschooler, uh, a homeschooling parent, do you address that and make sure your kids do have interactions? Well, um, research shows that home educated children are involved in about eight social and um, academic activities a week. So um, rather than being stuck in a classroom with same-age peers, home education is actually a lot more diversity out there. Kids are exposed to a lot more diversity, different um, people, ages, religions, race, cultures, and it's very enriching for children. And they find friends 
everywhere. Homeschoolers are very well connected. Judy, curious about, um, do you have any kind of stats or, or, you know, background info on how kids do who are homeschooled versus school in terms of diploma exams and moving on to post-secondary, how well they do and how they compare? Um, We do have some information on um, kids who are coded home education writing diploma exams. Um, Last year with one school authority, they their average marks were around 74% as opposed to 65% for the provincial average. So we, we know homeschool, home-educated children do well academically and socially. Okay. Judy, when, you, when you're in the regular school stream, you know, you have the kids up and out of bed at 7, you have them breakfast and get them to class, <laughs> and there's a real structure, whether it's 8 to 4 or 9 to 3, whatever it might be. How about at home? Is it, uh, does it look a, lo- a little bit different, and, and how is the work spread out through the week? It's way different, but it, it looks like a lot of us who are working from home, you know, we stay in our jammies until um, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot it's much more relaxed, you know. Um, you know, children will have about maybe, uh, it takes about a tenth of the time of the school day. So children have a concentrated time maybe for some seat work, but for the rest of the day they have lots of free time. Um, home educators read an average of 50 books a year because they have the time to pursue their interests. So it's it's very flexible, very relaxed every parent finds their groove and find what works for them. Um, If they replicate school in the home, and that's been the problem for the spring for parents, is they try to do that, and it doesn't work. They have to find their own groove and their own flow during the day. I love that there's lots of support out there because I wasn't aware of that. And obviously, you're a big proponent. So, Judy, did you were you homeschooled or did you homeschool your own kids or how did you get involved? I homeschooled my five kids wow. all the way through to the end of grade 12. They all got diplomas, scholarships, and three are university graduates right now. Awesome. Incredible yeah. stuff. Oh, you're Would you over. change anything? Not a thing. <laughs> Not a thing. Best thing no. as a mom being a homeschooling parent? What would you say? The best thing is close family relationships that extend on. Like my kids are all best friends now, even though there's quite an age year gap. I think that is the big payoff. Wow. You walk in the walk. You've done it. And we can get more info at albertahomeschooling.ca. Is that right? That's right. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your ch- uh, your time this morning, Judy. Thank you for having me. That is Judy Arnell, president of the Alberta Homeschooling Association. She certainly makes it seem very appealing, and I yeah. would have never thought of this because I have never spent this much time with my kids during the <laughs> school year, uh, but they did get it done. I, I watched them, and I, I did oversee. This was different, as she mentioned, and underscoring that it's not watching them do their assignments online, but you're fully immersed. Right, and you've got support if you can't help them figure out that math question. And maybe you take the year. I never thought of it in those terms because you can always go back. Yeah, it's a it's a great concept. Maybe uh, maybe you're into it. Let us know what you think about homeschooling. Are you a homeschooling parent? 403-974-8255. It's 617 now. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. 
8-11 now on your Friday morning, and it seems as though the stress of the pandemic has caused some relationships to break down. There's been an increase in couples seeking divorce, and looks like there will be a spike in filings when the courts reopened. To discuss, we're joined this morning by CEO and founder of Fairway Divorce Solutions, Karen Stewart. Hi, Karen. Good morning. So, Karen, this is an interesting discussion. Is Are you finding that this people who've just spent too much time together or were there issues leading up and it just kind of was the, the straw that broke the camel's back? Do you, can you even speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, historically, after any time where families are together for a longer period of time, often we see that around holidays, you know, over the Christmas, for example, we'll see spikes after those events in the number of divorces. Well, this is like an extended forced holiday that has just sort of brought a lot of families, unfortunately, to that final decision. So there is no question that, you know, we've seen an increase. Um, our offices across Canada have seen an increase. Um, and, I, and I guess it's unfortunately predictable. So in an interesting time, you mentioned during stressful times, Karen, but this one, even one step further, as you mentioned, because of the dimension of you can't even exactly, and particularly over the past few months, separate because where are you going to go when a lot of people were isolating? Well, exactly. I mean, we've had so many families um, and couples calls and say, okay, even people that are in the middle of a divorce. So, you know, they've, they've decided before COVID that they were going to end their marriage. And now they're in that process of trying to figure out how they're going to move apart. And, and this has just been a really trying time for them. How do we, you know, coexist under one roof, very much isolated from family and friends and activities that would take us out. And we're trying to manage that within the context of not having our whole family blow up and keep the kids um, at arm's length of uh, arm's way of uh, arguing and, Mm -hmm. and conflict. So is this a time where you maybe say, you know, just maybe chill out, spend a little time separate and really make sure this is what you want? Or is this where you go, well, you clearly you know because you've spent a lot of time together and, and your decision, you know, let's go ahead with it. I think that's always great advice. I mean, you know, I've been running uh, Fairway for many years now. And and just because we run a, a divorce company, we're not advocates of divorce. We're advocates if you have to go through this really difficult time, go through it in a smart way. That being said, Going through divorce is hard. It's hard on the children. It's hard on the parents. It's hard on, on it, you know, it complicates your life after the fact. Um, so absolutely, if there's a way that you can go into counseling, and, and there's lots of people seeking counseling uh, virtually as well, um, do everything you can to keep the family together. I, I just think that that's best for everybody in the long term, if you can. If you can't and you've made that decision, be very you know, very analytical and thoughtful about what your next steps are because how you move through divorce will define many years after that. And that's not just including your financial situation, but particularly if you have children, that's going to that's gonna really set the tone for how you two are going to co-parent. So be very, very thoughtful and careful and don't get in the in the frame uh frame of mind as i'm going to you know get back at this person or this this divorce process can be a platform for me to get some sort of revenge that is not the way to approach this extremely important decision making time 
Karen, I know we're, we're still in the middle of the pandemic for the most part, uh, but I'm wondering, and, and I'm not sure if there's been any studies or stats, is there a specific demo um, of the couples that you're seeing come in or uh, as far as length of, the, of time they've been married? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, we're always about watching statistics, and it's very difficult to gather divorce statistics because, of course, in Canada, we haven't done that since 2008. But uh, a little aside uh, story for Calgary is I was helping my son lease a apartment downtown in one of the newer buildings, and, and the, the leasing agent said, oh, no, all these types of apartments are basically gone. And I went, what? Like, in this? Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? And I said, why would that be? She said, oh, it's all the divorce. And I was, I, my mouth just dropped and I thought, wow. So there's, there's, you know, we're not even seeing, I mean, we're seeing a lot of people, but people who come to Fairway typically will have assets and children that they, that they're trying to make really smart decisions about and looking for a way to make those decisions. But there's this whole other group of people that are young and, um, you know, probably just a few years into their marriage that are saying, nope. I'm out of here and going and renting these condos or these apartments downtown. Mm. And I just found that a very interesting uh, demographic. It really, truly is. You know, Karen, I was just on your website. I see you do free consultations. So maybe that's, uh, you know, a good place for folks to start. So maybe, uh, you know, get a little information before they move forward on this. Well, I always say, you know, be an empowered decision maker. And the only way you can be an empowered decision maker, and that applies to ending your marriage, how you're going to co-parent, how are you going to split your assets, it also applies to the process you're going to go through through your divorce. So, you know, I'm a huge advocate of the fact that divorce is an event in your life. It doesn't have to define your life, but how you go through it will set the stage. And so just... And give yourself a hug because if you are in a situation where you're stuck in a house with somebody who you don't want to be there for much longer with, just just mind your P's and Q's because you don't want to leave a legacy in the in those those children to hear yeah. our, our experience and activity of what's going on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Thank you. That is Karen Stewart, CEO and founder of Fairway Divorce Solutions. Fairwaydivorce.com is the website. 817, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Just one traffic light from the mountain. 719 on your Friday morning. And uh, we recently got an email from a co-worker who had visited a new Calgary coffee shop called Element Cafe and was fascinated by the owner and his story. So we wanted to share it with you. And joining us this morning is Human Hodai, who is the owner of Element Cafe. Good morning, Human. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having us on. I'm actually here with uh, our, all three of our owners, Homayon Hodai and Braden Novus as well. Fantastic. Well, we're glad you're all with us. Tell us a little bit about, okay, so we've got a new business, Element Cafe on uh, 17th Ave Southwest, but we're interested in this story that took you to that point, Human. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, my uh, business partner, one of my business partners, Braden and I, uh, we're both uh, in our early 20s uh, a couple of years ago, and you know, we just uh, we were out studying and we, we just kind of came to the realization that we want to come out here and kind of create this new vibe for Calgary. And at the time, unfortunately, you know, with the uh, Calgary economic situation, um, both my parents had been laid off. Mm. And uh, what happened was we just pitched the situation to them and we pitched the business. And, you know, my parents believed in me and they uh, they knew we were going to we had something in mind and we pushed through and. Here we are today, you know, creating this beautiful thing on 17th Avenue. 
having a dream is fine and, and bringing it to reality. That is a success story. But tell us about it. Was it was it scary to do something like this you've never done before? It was certainly scary at times. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, it's so intimidating, you know, the entire city process, the licensing process, you know, so many bylaws you've never heard of before. So, you know, it's certainly a journey and it was certainly scary at times and definitely a lot of ebbs and flows. But, you know, we're so grateful to, you know, be able to open in, in our beautiful city. And you talked about your, your parents, both of them, petroleum engineers. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who can relate being, you know, laid off in the oil and gas industry here in this province. And and they wanted to help you. And you had a goal, really, to to put a little life back into our downtown core. Absolutely. And that's that's exactly what it was. You know, we we you know, we looked around and we saw that the people our age who are graduating university, you know, one's going to Chicago, one's going to Vancouver, one's going to Toronto, one's going to Montreal. And, you know, we're looking around saying we have a we have a hell of a city here. So mm-hmm. uh, why not, you know, um, why not try to invest in ourselves and try to, you know, bring some life back into the downtown course, 17th Avenue. And speaking of my parents, you know, I think they act as a, uh, you know, they motivated us. And I think, you know, they've inspired many in this process. Let's talk about, you know, your your spot, the Element Cafe. What makes it unique and what's the ambiance, you know, that you offer up for customers? Oh, well, I'm really glad you asked. Uh, you know, we, we the locations, you know, just uh, 17th and 4th Street, 331 17th Avenue. And we were so grateful to be in such a, a core location because what we wanted to create was a unique vibe where you can sit and feel comfortable. You know, the reason we chose the name Element was because we wanted somewhere where people can walk in and feel as if they are within their own element and ask themselves, what is my element? You know, these are weird times. You know, there's a lot going on in the city uh, economically. There's, of course, a lot going on in the world. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to create an ambiance uh, decoration. You know, we had a great team of architects. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, in terms of quality of service, food, and coffee, most importantly, you know, we wanted to focus on all three of those things. I love it. And, you know, people lose their jobs and sometimes can leave this province and, and the city that you're normally, you know, would would be living in. But due to economics, you get up and pack up and you move, but not you and not your family, not your parents. So I know that was a big part of it is that you guys wanted to give back to the city that you love so much. So thank you for joining us and telling us your story, Human. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on. It's, it's been a great honor. And yeah, we love Calgary and all the Calgarians. Thank you very much. That's Human Hudai, and he is one of the co-owners of Element Cafe on 17th Ave Southwest. 6.49 on the morning news. More Canadians see racism as a serious problem in Canada today than just one year ago, Ipsos polling exclusively done for Global News shows 60% of Canadians feel racism is a serious problem in this country. It's up 13 points since last year. With the details, we're joined by Sean Simpson, Ipsos Vice President. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning. Well, let's start with what kicked it off in 2020, and that is the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, I believe that was one of the questions you asked Canadians and their support behind the BLM. Yeah, that's right. 63% of Canadians say that they support the Black Lives Matter movement. Only 20% don't. So it's about a three to one ratio in in support of the movement. And I think we can clearly see the impact of uh, George Floyd and and the the, uh, ensuing Black Lives Matter movement uh, because we've had a very significant shift in public opinion in just the course of a year 
we usually don't get shifts of say 13 points uh, in a year. Uh, you know, you, you, we look at that, and, and I, I think on the surface uh, it looks like a good thing because uh, people are uh, 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 you know more aware of the problem mm-hmm. and, and therefore more more um, acknowledging that it is in fact a serious problem in, in Canada. But the bad news is is that we have a greater proportion of Canadians now uh, saying that they've personally been a victim of racism. That's up five points in the same year. People more free, I think, probably to admit to that and having experienced it for sure. Uh, talk to us, Sean, a little bit about some more of the numbers. Do, do Canadians as a whole believe it, there is systemic racism in our country and in the RCMP for that matter? Yeah, so 60% of Canadians believe that there is systemic racism in Canada, so it, it's a majority. And uh, 50% believe that there is is uh, systemic racism in the in the RCMP and, and in other institutions like the government, the police at large, the courts, uh, the education, journalism, etc. And so there, there, there does seem to be an acknowledgement in Canada that it, it's not just uh, an American problem. You know, we can easily cast stones south of the border. Uh, but uh, most Canadians say, you know what, if we take a close look at ourselves, uh, mm. we've got a problem here as well. Sean, uh, this is a, a different time. And again, you say you've never seen numbers like this year over year. So I'm wondering, in the case of the systemic racism question, is this something that you can compare with your data to previous years? Or is this the first time a question like that has been asked to Canadians? Yeah, it's actually the uh, the first time that uh, that I can recall that Ipsos has asked uh, uh, such a question, which in and of itself, uh, you know, suggests something, right? It it, it it's obviously been been uh, alerted in the media enough that maybe this is something that that we have to examine, and and that uh, you know we've adapted our thinking and our questions to the current context, and 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 wanted to uh, to explore whether people thought that uh, systemic racism does exist, and half of Canadians do, and I'm sure we will uh, continue to to ask this question again in the future to see whether or not we're making progress or falling behind. Sean, before we let you go, just wanted to ask you quickly about uh, when you asked people about the acceptability of discrimination against certain groups, what, what was the answer you got to that? Yeah, we're finding that almost across the board, fewer people think it's it's uh, it's it's acceptable to to discriminate against uh, uh, different groups, whether it's uh, Muslims or Arabs in general, immigrants, refugees, uh, blacks uh, as well. Uh, but there's one group where it's up by four points, and that is against uh, Asian communities. And I think you know if we look at COVID nineteen and the fact that it it, uh, it began in in China and spread around the world. It looks like some people might be using that as an excuse uh, to, to make it more acceptable to be prejudiced against, uh, against Asian Canadians. So that's something that we absolutely need to watch out for. Thanks for joining us, Sean. My pleasure. That is Ipsos Vice President Sean Simpson. Time for Great Ideas brought to you by Park to Go Airport Parking with Value Valet. Thank you for parking it at home at this time to help flatten the curve. Please keep safe. Coming up to 7.09 on the morning news. California has replaced Florida as the new epicenter of coronavirus cases in the U.S. this week. With a population comparable to Canada, the state has now over 420,000 active cases, nearly four times more of cases than our country has. With details on the crisis south of the border, we're joined by Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Jackson Prosco. Good morning to you, Jackson. Good morning. Want to start on the West Coast. It appeared that California was doing well even a few short weeks ago. Now the state is making headlines for being the new hotspot in the nation. What happened there? 
Yeah, there are sort of three hotspots in the nation at this point and more growing by the day. And really what it seems to come down to is the resumption of indoor dining, the return to gyms, the reopening uh, is allowing the virus to spread. And, and the more and more experts I speak to, they all suggest that a lot of these indoor activities, no matter where you are, are simply incompatible with this virus and can't be allowed to proceed until there's a vaccine or until the virus is drastically brought under control. A definitely changing situation in the U.S. and the president leading the charge now doing a 180 saying masks are okay and and has since what canceled the the republican convention really effectively isn't he yeah, and of course, keep in mind the context here, which is that Trump originally moved uh, most of the convention out of Charlotte, North Carolina, because the governor there refused to confirm that the convention could go ahead as planned with no social distancing in the middle of the pandemic. So Trump got frustrated, pulled up stakes, moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And of course, Florida is a huge hotspot right now as well. Uh, so Trump yesterday came out and said, look, it's not safe for people to gather at the convention. He'll find another way to hold his speech. That's in line with what the Democrats are doing. They've moved to a virtual convention. But the messaging is really problematic for Trump because he came out and said it's not safe to gather for the convention and then pivoted and five minutes later was telling parents it's safe to send their children back to school. And the mixed messages seem to continue. I believe the quote from Trump was the country is in very good shape other than if you look south and look west. The issue here, in my opinion, Jackson, is if you look south and you look at Florida and Texas, add those populations to the west and in California, It's such a huge majority of the country. Yeah, and you don't just have to look south and look west to see trouble. Uh, here in the, you know, the mid-Atlantic, in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Virginia and Maryland are seeing huge spikes in cases. Baltimore this week announced that they're shutting restaurants and bars back down again because uh, the state of Maryland is seeing a 1,000 cases per day. Virginia's seen a huge spike. Washington, D.C. is seeing a spike. So this is a problem for the entire country. There's a risk, of course, that uh, the virus is just going to continue to be reseeded in areas as people move freely around the country. You had Dr. Deborah Burks come out this morning in, in, in an interview and say there are essentially three New Yorks in the U.S. right now because there are three zones at least where the virus is spreading just the way it was in New York back in mm. April. Well, the numbers are scary and it's a great reminder for us here in Canada to, to know what can be if we don't be careful. Let's switch gears a little bit, Jackson. I want to talk to you about Portland, Oregon and what's been going on there because it's kind of flown under the radar a little bit, but we're really seeing that this has been going on for some time. Yeah, so these are protests that started, uh, I believe it's 56 days ago uh, after the death of George Floyd. And what's happened sort of in the past week is that the federal government here in the U.S. has sent unnamed uh, and unidentified federal agents into Portland uh, under the guise of protecting federal property, specifically a federal courthouse. Uh, But to hear the mayor tell it, the protests had actually sort of been winding down and were largely peaceful until these forces came in and started grabbing people off the street and stuffing them in unmarked vans, for example. And as videos of that uh, circulated, that really ramped the protests back up. Uh, The Trump administration says they're just protecting federal property, but that doesn't explain why they're doing things like uh, what they call proactive arrests, uh, why they're arresting people who are nowhere near this federal property. And now, of course, the president is sending more of these federal agents into other cities, to Chicago, for example, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to deal with what are essentially local policing matters. And I think just a final point on that is that... uh, 
you know, uh, Chicago in particular, Trump says he's sending these federal forces there to deal with um, gun crime and, and the rate of homicides in that city. Back when Barack Obama was president, Trump was sitting on the sidelines blaming Obama for the violent crime in Chicago. Uh, if that's the case, Trump has been president for nearly four years, but is not accepting the blame for the violent crime in Chicago. Mm. And, and Chicago is going to be an interesting situation because the mayor of Chicago earlier this week saying, not in my backyard. We're not going to let federal agents into the city. So that could be a very interesting situation. Yeah, she has essentially reached a compromise where she has said if they're coming to help with investigations of crimes or lend support, that's fine. But if they're coming to take over, then she will go to court to stop it. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, the the China issue as well. Ongoing battle, the U.S. and China, and uh, you know the U.S. deciding to close the Chinese consulate in Houston, and then China retaliating. Is that getting much play in the U.S. right now? Yeah, I mean, those uh, images that came out of Houston of uh, documents apparently being burned in the courtyard of the Chinese consulate certainly raised a lot of eyebrows here. And it seems to be an ongoing escalation between the U.S. and China at a time when tensions were all running, already running high. Uh, you're right, China announced this morning retaliation by closing down the consulate in uh, Chengdu. Uh, and it's sort of a question of where does this go from here or do things sort of pause at this point? The, the central allegation from the U.S. is that the consulate in Houston was a hotbed of spying activity. Uh, and so they shut that down. And of course, we've seen the U.S. take similar measures with Russian consulates uh, in the past. In the past few years, they shut down Russian consulates in places like San Francisco and some of their offices here in Washington as well. I want to go local and uh, tie it into the U.S. situation here in Calgary. Mandated this week that as of August 1st, uh, all uh, public facilities indoor and public transit will be required to wear masks and I'm wondering, we, we've heard the mixed messages coming from President Donald Trump about masks, but what is the sentiment, uh, sentiment in your opinion, of Americans and mask wearing? Are, are they interested in it or is it a split issue? It really depends on where you are geographically in the country. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., for example, we've had a mask mandate uh, similar to one brought in in Calgary in place since uh, late April. And so uh, it is incredibly hot and incredibly humid in this city. And if you go out for just a casual stroll, you'll see 95 percent of people wearing masks, even if they're not near anybody else. And in fact, they adjusted the mask, mask mandate this week to make it perfectly clear. There are no more ifs and buts. It's if you're leaving your house wear a mask unless basically you're a child under the age of three. Very clear, very simple. Other places, though, are, you're right, slow and reluctant. Uh, we're still a little more than half the states that actually have statewide mask mandates. Many do not. Uh, there's still a sort of fight in some jurisdictions over whether or not they should be mandated or required. And so, as things typically go in the U.S., it's been up to the private sector to step up and take a leadership role. And now you've got big national retailers like Walmart and Kroger and Home Depot that have simply said, at all of our stores across the country doesn't matter where you are you must wear must wear a mask uh, Jackson before we let you go um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez I mean yesterday uh, quite the brouhaha has erupted with you know female politicians forever in all countries have taken a lot of insults and, and she just finally stood up and said not going to anymore yeah, it was a Republican member of Congress who leveled a slur at her, apparently on the steps of the uh, uh, Congress building. Uh, and then she got up and repeated the words that were uttered against her inside Congress, which I believe is the first time in history those words have officially mm. been entered into the record. Uh, you're right, though. Female politicians do sometimes face an awful double standard, do have to put up with awful levels of abuse. And we have to keep in mind that uh, Ocasio-Cortez, no matter what you think of her politics, 
is often a target for Trump's supporters and the right. They've sort of made her the poster child, if you will, for what they see as a radical left movement. And so she is subjected to a lot more attacks and a lot more vitriol than many other members of Congress and specifically uh, any male member of Congress. Jackson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. As Jackson Prosco, a Washington bureau chief for Global News. At 717, it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com.